بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Okay, alhamdulillah, we are still on module 10. However, we're shifting from our discussion on the diseases of the heart to the positive, praiseworthy qualities that we have to have in our heart. So we're talking about takhliya for a few weeks, getting rid of the bad. And now we come to the part where we talk about takhliya or adorning with the good. And before I begin, it was on my mind today, so I wanted to mention it here just in passing. When we look at a lot of the Islamic discourse, both in English as well as in Arabic to a large extent as well, what we find is that a lot of the discourse tends to be very, let's say, preachy, preachy. Because you know in Islam, you have sacred knowledge, ilm, and there's multiple sciences within Islam, and each science has a certain way of being taught. But then you also have this other thing called wa'ad, or irshad, which is like preaching. It's like preaching, it's like uh, giving exhortations and reminders, things that are uplifting and that move the heart. A lot of the Islamic discourse is geared towards the latter more than the former. And what I mean is, if you ask the random practicing Muslim what they listen to the most, from Islamic YouTube channels or speakers or clips or whatever they're consuming, the large majority of it is the inspiring, exhorting, reminder type of discourse, right? Things that make you feel good, things that uplift you, things that remind you. And these things are good. They are important. They're absolutely critical. However, a lot of people confuse that with uh, shari knowledge in a very systematized and formal way. And the two are different. Historically, in Islamic societies from the earliest period, probably the earliest period we can say from the time of Imam Ali radiallahu anhu and Hassan al-Basri, you had this category of people in Muslim societies known as the Wa'adh. The Wa'adh were like the preachers, the ones who give the inspirational talks in the masjid to either induce fear, the fear of Allah and the inspiration to tawbah or encouragement to good through heartfelt reminders. And these Wa'adh were regulated. They were regulated during the reign of Imam Ali radiallahu anhu. In fact, 
one narration says that Imam Ali actually kicked them all out of the masajid. And he only allowed one of them to remain as a preacher serving that function of giving the reminders. And that was Imam Hassan al-Basri. Uh, Hassan al-Basri, rahimahullah, was one of the great ulama, but he was also a preacher. And I say that because we're talking about matters of the heart, aren't we? And we're also learning fardain, so we're, we're, we're kind of combining the two, aren't we? We're talking about things that concern the heart as reminders and as warnings, but we're also grounding that in knowledge and presenting it in a very systematic way, listing out the diseases, what they are, what are they caused by, how do they manifest, and how do you get rid of them, right? That is very ilmi, is very ilmi in that it's, it's given a very sharp structure. And it's not preachy, it's not, we're, not suppo- we're not trying to make it sound preachy, we're trying to present it as fardain knowledge and not make it a sermon that moves us off, right? And I say that because these matters that we're talking about have their place in Islamic discourse as reminders, as exhortations, things that move the heart. But that's not our primary objective here. Our primary objective is to talk about these matters in a very structured way, where we learn them as a part of our fard'ain knowledge that we all have to know. Right? If you go to a class on aqidah, uh, meaning, uh, say, a beginner or intermediate to advanced level, it's not very emotional, right? Is that correct? It's very dry, right? Some of you were here. We had a few different aqidah classes that were long-term, that stretched out two years and more. They're very dry. Those kinds of classes are not the place to give fiery speeches. Because you have to have a sort, a sort of, what, what would be the term? You have to have a dispassionate way about learning those things. Because in those areas of knowledge, it's not about emotion. It's about understanding principles and applying those principles and having tasawwur, having a proper conception of the issues. Uh, and I just, I say that today because I was thinking about it. For some reason, it came to my mind. You know, we're talking about matters of the heart now for this is module seven or this is lesson seven of module 10 and although it concerns the heart we're not trying to present it in uh, that inspirational way so if you're coming to learn about heart matters and it seems a bit dry what is the reason for that it's because we want to learn what they are what are the bad qualities how to get rid of them and then learn the good qualities and how to build them within ourselves and that requires a certain level of uh, systemization and structure that doesn't lend itself to preaching and inspiration and giving heartfelt reminders. Okay, so with that out of the way, we're now talking about tahliya. Remember we said the process of, of purification in Islam of this third degree of the religion of ihsan is composed of two things primarily a tahliya wa tahliya tahliya getting rid of the bad and tahliya bringing in the good so you get rid of the toxic waste and the junk 
Once you've gotten rid of all of that, you have an empty space you can fill with good. So we're now at the, pro at the section of Tahliya. We're still in the Mataratul Qulub, although we're kind of getting out of it now. Uh, in the Mataratul Qulub, Imam Muhammad Mawlud talks about the diseases of the heart first, because that's the priority, getting rid of those things, and then you build. And after he talks about all of those diseases of the heart, he then says, uh, as you see here in the slide, in bold, after all that, meaning after all of that stuff we've talked about, if a heart has become illuminated through the process of removing these vices, it cannot do without adornment. What is adornment? Tahliya, right? So as we said, takhalli or takhliya is treating the illness by removing the filth and cleaning the wounds of the heart. We use the analogy of a wound. What this means is that detox is not enough, right? If you're trying to get healthy, let's say a person has built really bad habits over many years in their diet and their lifestyle. The first thing they want to do is get rid of that bad stuff, clean out their cupboards, and they're going to have to go through this detox period as they get rid of all the toxins in their body, as they sweat it out, you know. But is detoxing en enough? No. They have to replace the bad food choices with good food choices so that when they're, they detox themselves from the bad, they then bring into their body what is good. And that is like the tahliya. So use the analogy of a wound. Let's say the wound, someone got cut. And let's say that cut got infected, right? What are you going to do if you got cut and you have an infection? Well, first, you're going to clean that wound, right? You're going to clean it. You're going to remove whatever dirt and sediment was on the wound. You're going to apply a general antiseptic. You're going to bandage it. But maybe the infection has gone deeper than the surface. Maybe it's gotten into your bloodstream. In which case, you have a fever and other conditions. To get rid of that, you're going to have to use some other medications, stronger medications. You're going to need to replenish your uh, electrolytes. You're going to need fluids and vitamins and things to help get that out of your system. So bringing in the good is key once you get rid of the bad. But, as I said before, let's not get confused. We're using the analogy of the body, of getting rid of the bad and bringing in the good, but let's not understand that you have to get rid of all the bad qualities before you can take any good qualities on. That's not what it means. It means that the priority is attending to the diseases and getting rid of them. One of the ways to get rid of them is to know their causes, and while you're treating the causes, you start to take on the good, because that good gives you the strength to continue getting rid of the vestiges of the bad that, have, that has accumulated over time. So using that analogy, we go into the, what, we, what Imam al-Ghazali calls al-munjiyat, or those things that give us salvation. So in his Ihya Ulum al-Din, he has the first section called al-muhlikat, or the destructive vices the diseases of the soul. After talking about the muhlikat, he then talks about the munjiyat, those things that give uh, najat, salvation to the soul. So we start with the uh, most important of all of these positive 
the qualities. And that is tawbah. I'm going to skip a slide here because I don't, it's not really too essential here. Uh, the first of these positive praiseworthy qualities is tawbah. Right? Tawbah is going to be with a Muslim from the beginning, the middle, and the end until they leave this world. That is to say, tawbah is not something you do once and you move on from. No, there's no moving on from tawbah. It is always going to be with us in the beginning, the middle, and the end. Right? So the ulama say that tawbah or repentance is to the virtues what the ground is to a building. Imagine a building without any ground. It's, a, it's an oxymoron. Because in order for it to be a building, it has to have a foundation. So the foundation to the virtues is tawbah. It's repenting. It is the beginning and the end of the spiritual path. Now what does tawbah mean? It's one of the common words we hear all the time. Tawbah is translated as repentance. But what does repentance mean? You hear the suffix re. What is re? Going back, right? So, going back. So, in the Arabic, it's the same thing. Tawbah means rujur. It means going back. Going back to what? Going back to your prior state before you did the haram. Going back to the way things were before the heart got polluted. Another way of looking at tawbah is that it is return in that you are in a sense, going back home. Going back home, meaning going back to that state before you took on all of these bad things and developed bad habits, right? That is what it is. That's the linguistic meaning, of course. In the Sharia, we have the technical meaning of tawbah, which is very precise. The ulama say that tawbah is to return from... Uh, things or a thing that is blameworthy in the Sharia to what is praiseworthy. So you could picture it. Something that is madhmum, it's blameworthy in the sacred law. To go back from that to what is mahmud, to what is praiseworthy, to what is good. So you see the technical meaning is almost the same as the linguistic meaning, except the technical meaning applies to matters of Sharia, what is you know, halal and haram. So it is basically to go back to the way things were before you did the haram, right? Now the ulama say that tawbah is uh, an, an immediate obligation. What that means is if a person has done something haram, tawbah becomes wajib in that moment, immediately, right? Let's say a person drank Alcohol. I'll use that as a generic example. The moment they drink alcohol, they have done something haram. And the moment they drink alcohol, tawbah becomes wajib on them in that very moment. And if they delay the tawbah to the next day, or the next week, or the next month, or the next year, or whenever, that delay of tawbah is a sin in its own right. That means that if a person drank alcohol 
and they delayed their tawbah for one week, they actually have to make tawbah from two sins. The first sin, drinking alcohol. The second sin they have to make tawbah from is delaying tawbah. Because Allah Ta'ala commands that we make, we make tawbah immediately. You have to return. That delay is a sin in its own right. Now, for those of you, you've been around here for a while, you may be familiar with this. Uh, the ulama mentioned that tawbah isn't just saying astaghfirullah. A lot of people think that. They think like, oh, okay, he did this haram. Astaghfirullah, it's all good. <laughs> That's not true. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Qur'an, وَقُلْ اِسْتَغْفِرُوا رَبَّكُمْ ثُمَّ تُوبُوا إِلَيْهِ He mentions in the Qur'an, اِسْتَغْفِرُوا uh, رَبَّكُمْ Seek the forgiveness of your Lord, ثُمَّ تُوبُوا إِلَيْهِ And then make tawbah. So ثُمَّ, this conjunction ثُمَّ is for, uh, it indicates that there's a difference between seeking forgiveness and making tawbah. If they meant this exact same thing, then why would Allah Ta'ala say, seek forgiveness and then make tawbah? So tawbah is not just saying astaghfirullah. Right? You may in tawbah say astaghfirullah, of course. But tawbah has other conditions besides just saying, oh Allah, I seek your forgiveness. And these conditions are four. Now there's three main ones. And then there's a fourth one that is thrown in depending on the sin, because there's different kinds of sins. And I like to refer to them as the four R's. I like this mnemonic because it's helpful to, it's easier to memorize. The four R's represent the four conditions of a valid tawbah that is insha'Allah accepted in the sight of Allah. And we have them here. Refrain, remorse, resolve, and lastly, redress. So the first three are always going to be present in any tawbah. The fourth one is present when the sin is between us and other people, as we'll see, except for one aspect. So let's look at these individually. Uh, the first one is refrain. And in Arabic, we call that iqla'. Now, refrain is to immediately leave the sin. Right? Now that condition applies if the person is doing the sin in the moment. So let's say the person's in a nightclub and they're partying it up and all of a sudden they get inspired, they should make tawbah. So the first condition for them is to get out of the club right away. But not all sins are like that. Right? Some sins, once they happen, okay, they're done. They happen. Right? It's one moment. Right? So that if, they, if they were backbiting someone, as soon as they, in their backbiting, the sin is finished, right? It's not something that they are continually doing in the moment, unless they're in the middle of a conversation and then they decide, whoop, hit the brakes, I'm going to stop right now and change the topic and I'll make toba. So if a person is drinking wine, for example, if they have the bottle in their hand, they put it down. If they're in a haram place doing haram things, they leave. That is iqla'. You can't make tawbah while you continue with the act. That's, that's the idea. You can't say as you're on the dance floor in the club, partying it up, uh, I make tawbah now, but you know, after the song is over, I'll, I'll leave. 
that's not how it works. Or, you know, I'll make Toba from drinking this Jack Daniels uh, after I finish the bottle and you're halfway done. That's not how it works. You have to leave it immediately. Now, if the sin has already been done, it's finished, then iqla' isn't really a condition because it's already been done. But the other conditions apply. So the next condition, the second R, is remorse. And remorse is perhaps the most important condition. Uh, remorse in Arabic is nedm. And the Prophet wasallam says in a famous hadith, At-Tawbatu uh, al-Nadm. That repentance is remorse. And what that means is that it is the epitome of tawbah. It is the heart of tawbah. Just like he said, Al-Hajju Arafah. That Hajj is standing at Arafah. Not that it's the only part of Hajj, but it is the central most part of the Hajj experience and the rites of the pilgrimage. Right? So remorse is perhaps the most important condition of all. And remorse is really is just just feeling bad for doing that thing. So the person doesn't feel remorse if they still relish the experience. How are they repenting? Right? Now, uh, Imam Ibn Arafa, Imam Ibn Arafa was a great Maliki scholar. Uh, he says in his Kitab al Hudud, which is a book on definitions, he says that remorse, he defines remorse by saying it is the pain felt by the sinner because of his dislike of what he did. Thus, if a person leaves a disobedient act without remorse, he is not repentant, such as a person who regrets drinking alcohol solely because of its harms to his health. Right? So, to elaborate, we see the, the statement from Imam Sanusi, he really elaborates on this. He says, the reality of tawbah in sharia is remorse over a sin because it's a sin. Because it is blameworthy in the sight of Allah. Because Allah has forbidden it. Because Allah detests that act. It's about Allah and not about any regrets we have to our health or our finances as a result of the sin. This means if a person is feeling remorseful because their night of partying landed them in jail, they may be sad that they're in jail, but they're not sad because that was blameworthy in the sight of Allah Most High. So they have remorse, but it's not the kind of remorse we're talking about here. The true remorse that is a condition of tawbah is the remorse feeling sad over doing this action because it is blameworthy in the sight of Allah. That is the condition. So if a person gets caught and they feel bad because they got caught or someone saw them, you know, out in the club, which kind of begs the question, how did that person see them, right? But let's say someone sees them and they feel shame. They feel embarrassed that, you know, someone they know sees them in this bad place. That sadness is not remorse over the fact that it is haram in the sight of Allah. It is because they got exposed or they're facing the consequence in this world for their action. Jail, a DUI, an accident, some mishap, an injury, damage to their health, damage to their finances. If they feel sad over all of these things, sure, that's, that's to be expected, but that's not toba. It has to be because it is blameworthy in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
So that, inshallah, is very clear. So we have refrain, we have remorse, and then we have the third condition. Oh, I, there's a slime. I'll go back to that. Uh, the third one is resolve. Resolve. And resolve here is the word uh, azm in Arabic. Azm is, is a firm decision, a firm resolve, a firm niyyah that you won't go back to it. Right? I'm not going to do this again. I make a firm commitment, I'm, I'm not going to do this again. That is a condition. If the person says, oh, I feel bad because it's haram, but I mean, I, I know I'm going to go out to the club tomorrow night too, you know, because there's a party and I got to be there, you know. So I make toba for it now, but I know I'm going to go tomorrow, you know, and maybe next week too. That's not real toba. There has to be azm. If the person makes toba, but they have an intention to do it again in the future, or if they're unsure if they're going to do it again in the future, you know, I might, I might not, then they have not made a proper tawbah. Now, of course, a person may make tawbah, they refrain, they feel bad about it, they seek a lost forgiveness, and they have a resolve to never do it again. But maybe a day goes by, or a week goes by, or months go by, and what happens? They fall into it again. Does that spoil the toba from the month before? It doesn't. Because when they made the toba, they had that firm niya. But as time went by, their resolve weakened and they fell into the sin again. What is required is a new toba. And that new offense doesn't cancel out the previous toba. They still receive a reward for that toba, but they have to make a new one, right? So I just want to go back here because there was one thing I meant to address. So we look at the, these conditions again. Refrain, remorse, and resolve. Now we said that if a person, uh, let's say they have remorse because it's haram in the sight of Allah. That is the condition of tawbah. But if they have remorse only because they uh, damaged their health or they got themselves into trouble, that sadness wouldn't be considered the remorse acceptable uh, among the conditions of tawbah. But there is a question that comes up. And the question is, uh, it's kind of a scenario. Like what if a person is doing certain sins and they get a diagnosis that they have weeks to live? Or let's say they get into a car accident from a DUI after a night of drinking and clubbing and they're on the verge of death. And in that moment, they make toba. Now, to the outside observer, that person is making toba or they're having remorse not because it is blameworthy in the sight of Allah, but because they're afraid of dying. They're worried about their state. They know that they're about to leave this world. Is that toba acceptable? The majority of the ulama say it is acceptable because they feel bad. They wish they hadn't done it. 
and they're at a state where they fear they're going to lo lose their life, they're, going, they're being diagnosed with something, or they're in the hospital on life support, who knows. And in that moment, they feel bad about it. Right? There, becomes, there comes a clarity in the times uh, when a person is diagnosed with uh, a fatal illness or when they're near death that they might not have otherwise had. So this is, inshallah, acceptable. So refrain, remorse, resolve. These are the three main conditions. Right? Now, the ulama note that these three conditions are linked to time. They say that remorse is linked to the past. Right? You feel bad about what you did in the past. And the iqla', the leaving of the sin, is linked to the present, right here and right now. And the resolve is projected to the future. I'm not going to do this again in the future. So tawbah encompasses the past, the present, and the future. I'm sad about what I did in the past. I'm stopping what I'm doing right now that is haram. And I resolve to not do it in the future. So you cover all three of these in the single act of tawbah. But these are just three. And we said there's how many conditions? Four. The fourth one is somewhat separate. And that is because not all sins require this fourth condition. There are sins that are between us and Allah. And then there are sins between us and other human beings. So all the examples of the drinking and the clubbing and all of that stuff, those are sins between the abd and his lord. But then there are sins that are between us and other people, such as what? Ghiba, backbiting, stealing from people, right? Abusing someone physically or verbally. These are offenses against the rights of other people. For those things, you can't just say, Astaghfirullah, I'm going to stop that. I feel remorse. I won't do it again. Because this involves the rights of other people. So there is a fourth condition that applies to those sins. And that is redress. Redress. Redress means to fix something, right? It is to fix the wrong. So you have to redress this wrong. If you gossip about someone or you hurt them in any way, it is not enough to just say, Astaghfirullah. You have to try to fix that by seeking their forgiveness. This is where it gets a little complicated. Because... Although ideally, you would go to that person and say, I wronged you, or I spoke badly about you, or I did this or that to you, I acknowledge it, please forgive me. That's an ideal. Is that always possible? No. Sometimes that creates a greater evil. It creates a fitna that wasn't there before. And if you know that it's going to cause a greater evil, then you may not have the option of going to that person face-to-face -face and seeking redress or giving redress by apologizing and seeking their forgiveness. Um, in which case, there's other ways you could do that. Uh, the scholars say that if you know that it will just cause a greater evil to go to that person, then what you should do is make dua for them. Uh, you should speak well about them in private gatherings just as you spoke badly about them in private gatherings. You should ask Allah to bless them. 
you should give them gifts, you should even secretly, you know, you can do these things. And hopefully Allah Ta'ala will pardon you and forgive you because you're seeking to preserve unity and not create a greater fitna. And inshallah things get straightened out. It's really tricky because ultimately on the last day, people will have the right to get those things back if we took from them. Allah al-Musta'an. Um, point being, as it says here, we're not allowed to violate anyone's God-given rights. The sins that are between us and Allah, the default concerning those sins is forgiveness and pardon. Because Allah has promised forgiveness and pardon for those who seek His forgiveness and try to make tawbah. But the default for the sins between us and other people is that they don't forgive. That is the default. Meaning, you can't just assume they're going to forgive. Right? So this is important to bear in mind. Between the two sins, those between us and Allah and those between us and other human beings, those between us and other human beings are far more difficult to deal with because they're just harder to fix. Whereas fixing what is between us and Allah is so simple because Allah Ta'ala has promised forgiveness and pardon for those who turn to Him. Um, having spoken about redress though, there is a, a, a subtle point that I want to add. We said that tawbah requires refraining, having remorse, and having resolve not to do it again, if the sin is between us and Allah. There is, however, a kind of redress in sins between us and Allah, if those sins are us abandoning certain obligations, right? There's things like going, you know, clubbing, drinking, this, that, the other. Those are sins. But then there's sins, those are sins of commission, you know, things you do. But then you have sins of tarq, sins of omission. What would be a very prominent sin of omission? Something that is left. Salat. Tarku salat, right? That's a major sin. So for tarku salat, is there anything else? Leaving fasting. What else? Not paying your zakat. These are sins of omission. For those, what does it mean to refrain? How do you refrain from tarku salat? <laughs> you pray. Right? From tarku zakat, you give zakat. For tarku siyam, you do the siyam and you do the kafara. Right? For the siyam. So I, I'm grouping that under redress in the sense that it's a way of fixing what needs to be fixed after the fact. So the scholars say that if the sin involves something obligatory that a person left, a part of the tawbah is qada. Or in the case of zakat, it's paying the back zakat that is owed. This means that if a person has left their salat for a long time, the, a part of their tawbah is to make up those prayers. And that is the position of all four of the Sunni schools of jurisprudence, as well as the Ja'fari method and others. So this means, as the Prophet ﷺ says, he said it in the context of hajj, but the ulama say it's, 
yeah, the, the mafhum applies to everything. Dainullahi ahaqu an The debt owed to God has more right to be paid. Right? So this means that a person will need to make up those prayers. Right? That can be a very daunting task for someone who's left prayers for several years. Often what happens is a person grows up in the Muslim household and they're praying with their family, their mother and father. And as they get older into their teenage years and in their 20s, they may go through a stage of ghafla, a stage of heedlessness where they're not really practicing Islam as they should. They're Muslim, but they're negligent Muslims. And at some point, maybe in their 20s, maybe later in their 30s, Allah guides them and gives them that wakefulness. He wakes them up. And they realize they have to make certain changes. But in that process, they realize they have maybe 10 years or so of prayers that they have to make up. So this is something to factor in. It is serious. And the mashayikh, they advise the person with lots of qada to try to pray one qada for every fard or two qada for every fard that you're doing. That's ada. That you, know, you have the current and then you have the past, the qada. So if you pray fajr, for instance, you, have, you can pray two rak'ah of qada for fajr or four, like two sets. And then your current fajr. And then at Dhuhr time, you can do Qadha Dhuhr before current Dhuhr and then for Qadha after, you know, whatever works, whatever is consistent. Um, there are some people who have done 10 years worth of Qadha in the period of a month or two because they didn't do anything else, right? If it's a priority, that means they're not going on that vacation. They're not going on that picnic. They're doing Qadha, Qadha, Qadha. But what, what we've seen is that if a person has a lot of qada, it's better to build something consistent and steady and not try to overload themselves all at once, right? Same thing goes for fasting. The same thing goes for uh, past zakat that is unpaid. Uh, this has to be calculated, and it's not always easy to do that because you have to go back and calculate. But these are all sins that have to be accounted for, and the toe before them is to refrain, it is to have remorse, and to resolve not to do that again, but also to make those things up. Okay? Uh, and that's it for Tawbah. We're just giving a basic summary of Tawbah. And as we said, a person can make Tawbah from a sin, and they fall into it again, and again, and again, and again. And each time that happens, they renew the Tawbah. And inshallah, the past Tawbah is acceptable, they still benefit from it, but they're still struggling. So they just keep doing the tawbah. And inshallah, there's a lot more to be said about tawbah, but that is the basic fard'ain knowledge concerning repentance. Uh, any questions about tawbah before we move on? That's true. Right. This is a, the, the ulama have mentioned this for a very long time. They say that if a person does a sin, and they find they keep doing it, they keep making tawbah and doing it again, then one of the things they can do, one strategy to finally break 
that habit for good is to not just make the tawbah, but to also resolve to do something extra to, to patch up what has been damaged, such as salat. Maybe it's uh, 50 rakah, maybe it's uh, sadaqah, maybe it's uh, khatm of the Qur'an, maybe it's this or that. Because they say that what happens is shaitan realizes that <laughs> Oh my gosh, this guy's doing more good after the sin than he was doing before. Let me stop suggesting him to do this. So that he gives up on you. Uh, and if that doesn't work, and you still find yourself doing it, what does it mean? It means it's not really shaitan anymore. It's your nafs, right? Because the nafs wants what it wants, and you have to engage in some mujahada. Uh, this, is, this is where it's really important, as Imam al-Ghazali says, to... Be very strict with yourself in keeping to your resolves, right? You know, a person may get fed up with themselves. They've done something haram and they're sick of it. They're, they're, they're remorseful, but they're also angry with themselves for always falling into this thing. And maybe in that moment they say, you know, if I do this again, I'm going to pray 1,000 rakahs. And they're very serious when they say that. But when it happens again, uh, I don't know about that. I don't know about those thousand rakahs. He says, Imam Ghazali says, if you get used to making resolve to do something and then you just give it up when that time comes, you, you really damage yourself because then you lose that strength of resolve for the future. You have to get used to committing to something and when you commit to it, you do it no matter what because that builds an internal discipline that allows you to make those commitments in the future and hopefully get rid of those bad habits. But if you make this big promise to yourself and you never keep it, right, then the next time it's going to be the same thing. And then the next time the same thing. And then it's a never-ending cycle. And the Prophet tells us in the hadith that for every abd, every servant, there is a particular sin that they tend to struggle with such that they go back to it time and time again. And they, they, they really struggle with this sin. And it could be a few, right? Maybe this person struggles with drinking or clubbing. Maybe this person struggles with backbiting. Maybe this person struggles with looking at the haram, right? And for the one who struggles with looking at the haram, maybe they don't struggle with the other sins. But the same applies for those other guys. Maybe they don't struggle with looking at the haram, but they struggle with this, right? And at the end of that hadith, the Prophet wasallam says uh, that he, Allah Ta'ala turns in tawbah to the one who repents. He, that It's open-ended. You just have to keep making tawbah, and inshallah, Allah gives you that resolve and that strength. Any other questions on tawbah? Good question. I thought about talking about that, but I, I, I elected not to. This is discussed by the ulama. The question is, if a person does a sin, they refrain, they have remorse, they resolve to never do it again, but in the future, they start to 
recollect the sin and they start to relish the experience. They're thinking about, you know, oh, that night was so awesome, you know, or whatever. Uh, does that relishing of the sin invalidate the tawbah? Some of the scholars said, yes, it does, because it negates remorse. Because it's not conceivable that a person who is truly remorseful is going to relish it as well. How can you relish it after you have remorse? This is so many of the ulama say that would invalidate it and would require a renewed tawbah. So after they relish it, they start to think, what am I doing? What is my state? Astaghfirullah. And you renew the tawbah because according to many, that has been invalidated, the past tawbah. Yeah. Any other questions on tawbah? If not, we go on to the next one, inshallah. Okay, so the next quality of the praiseworthy qualities is the quality of sabr. Sabr. And what do you think the next quality is after sabr? Shukr. They're always together. They're always together. So we talk about sabr first. Uh, sabr is a spiritual virtue. It is from the munjiyat, the qualities that give us salvation by Allah's grace. It's one of the praiseworthy qualities we want to build in our heart. It is an action of the heart that manifests on the limbs. Now what is sabr? Uh, here in the slide, you see I put at the top fortitude slash patience. The common translation for sabr is patience. I tend to like fortitude more. Because it, it, gives, it gives a feeling of strength, of you know, forcing yourself to be strong in a moment. Whereas patience in English, at least, it, it's, more, it's more passive. It's like you're just, okay, I'm being patient, I'm enduring something. Whereas fortitude is, is firmer in what it, uh, in what it uh, implies. And that goes into the definition, because the definition of sabr, according to the ulama, is habsun nafs is habsun nafs, which means to restrain yourself. It's an active thing. Restraining yourself to be in accordance with the rulings of your Lord. That's sabr. Sabr isn't just being passive during the time of a trial or a tribulation. It is active as well. In restraining yourself so that you are in accordance with the commands of Allah in any given moment. And the ulama, they say that sabr, this quality that is praised over 70 times in the Qur'an, and for which Allah Ta'ala says He gives reward for sabr بِغَيْرِ hisab without account. Meaning it's not, even, it's not even the scales of measure. It's immeasurable in terms of reward. They say that that quality of sabr arises from the ilm, this knowledge, that the desires of the nafs, the shahawat, are a barrier or a shield that uh, cover hell. Where is that from? It's from a hadith. The Prophet says in the hadith related by Bukhari that Hufatunar uh, the, the hellfire has been surrounded by base desires, right? So, 
the path to hell, you know, what's surrounding it, encircling hell, are all of these desires, these shahawat, these haram desires. And the things that are makarih, you know, they're difficult things, things you have to endure, those are the things that are encircling or around Jannah, right? Hufatin Jannah bil makarih, right? Jannah has been surrounded by makarih, and makarih doesn't just mean things you hate, it means things that are difficult as well. Trials, tribulations, struggles, things that require discipline, things that require effort, right? Jannah is surrounded by those things. When you have sure knowledge that that is the reality, then you have sabr when you live according to that knowledge. That's what, how they define sabr. So because sabr is restraining yourself to be in accordance with the rulings of Allah, the scholars mentioned there's three basic types of sabr. There is the sabr in refraining from the haram. There is the sabr in carrying out the acts of obedience to Allah. And then there is the sabr in dealing with tests and tribulations. Right? So sabr encompasses all three of these, not just number three, not just test. So let's look at these a little bit. Uh, of these three, is one harder than the other? Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe number one is harder, but you know, it depends on the person, right? It could one could be harder than the other. Um, but the first type, which is sabr from disobedience, is to avoid the haram and to restrain yourself from the haram and being patient in that restraint. So a lot of people think that this is the hardest type of sabr, especially when certain haram things become habits. Because in Islam's moral psychology, if you will, sins don't just become habits like that. It takes time for sins to become habits. And they say that the sins first start with the passing thought, right? The khawatir is the passing thought, you know, the idea of that haram thing. If it goes in one ear and out the other and the person doesn't latch onto it, they're fine. But if they grasp that passing thought, if they capture it and make it their own, it then becomes a desire. They start thinking about it. Now there's this desire to do that thing. But they still haven't done anything haram. It's just an idea. It's a desire. If they cut out the desire and are patient at that stage, alhamdulillah, good and well. But if they don't do that, eventually it goes from being a desire to being a resolve, a decision that they are going to do that thing. So they start to plan out in their mind how they're going to do it. Where, where am I going to go? When am I going to do it? With whom? You know, they arrange it. Not just in their mind, but also they may start planning it out. You know, how are we going to do this thing? They still haven't done it. But it's gone from a passing thought to a captured thought, from a captured thought to a desire, from a desire to a decision, a resolve to do it. 
and then it becomes an action. They do that haram thing. If they stop right after that action and make tawbah, alhamdulillah. The problem is maybe they don't make tawbah or maybe they do it once and then twice and then three times. They repeat that cycle over and over again until it goes from being a single haram thing they did to a habitual practice. It now becomes a habit. Once it's become a habit, the person now identifies with it to a large extent. It's a part of their identity. It's something they're doing a lot. That is much harder to uproot out of the soul than it is if it was a single haram thing they did in the heat of the moment that they then regret. Right? So once the sin has become a habit ingrained in the nafs, being patient in refraining from it at that stage is very difficult. And this is, shows you the importance of uh, not identifying with the passing thoughts and assuming they're your own and not latching on to those passing thoughts and having those attentions rise. Really learning where these things come from and then arresting it before it becomes a thing. Stopping it in its tracks, right? So the scholars, they say that when it comes to the commands of Allah Ta'ala, there are usually two soldiers, metaphorical, majazi soldiers, that you have to confront. There's the soldier of habit, and then there's the soldier of desire. Then there's a third possible soldier that could come, that makes patience very difficult, and that is the soldier of taysir, you know, the ease of doing that thing, right? Certain haram things are not so easy to do. It requires a lot of planning, things have to align just right for them to do that thing. But if the person has the habit, and they have the desire, and they have the means to do that, opened for them, in that moment, patience is very, very tough. Because all of the doors to that evil are open right in front of them, right? So as an example, I put here in the slide, let's say, you know, generic sin X presents itself. It is a habitual sin for that person. They've done it many times before. And in this moment, they desire again. And it's also very easy for them to do it in the moment. When all those three align, being patient and staying away from it is so tough. That's why prevention is the best medicine. If you can prevent these things from becoming habits in the first place, it makes it so much easier for you. So the struggle is when those things have become habits. And patience in that is it's literally to have some nafs, to just not do it. Hold yourself back. Now, sabr in ta'a, in obedience, means, according to the scholars, to avoid laziness and selfish impulses that, if followed, would lead one to neglect the obligations. So, leaving salat, leaving zakat, out of laziness and selfishness. The sabr in obedience means you get rid of or you resist the laziness. You resist the childish, selfish impulse to procrastinate, right? I'll give you a good example. You know, 
And I, you see this a lot with kids, but then adults have it too, and sometimes even worse. Uh, let's say, okay, the Dhuhr comes in. What time does Dhuhr come in? Like, let's say 1.30. What time does Asr come in? 5. Okay. Dhuhr comes in. The person, they're not really occupied with too many things. They, they have time. But they're busy playing a video game. Or they're watching a show on Netflix. And it goes from 1.30 to 2.30, 2.30 to 3. And in their mind, they're saying, well, Asr comes in at 5 o'clock, so... Yeah, I have three hours. I have three. I have, I have this nice large window. So, yeah. But then what happens is they get distracted. They, you know, they keep hitting next episode, next episode, because they're drawn into the show. And before they know it, they've missed Zuhur. Right? Because of procrastination, of delay. Right? So sabar in obedience within that context is to banish the laziness and procrastination and the selfish impulse of thinking like, oh yeah, you know, it's not urgent, right? If that becomes a habit, it's a huge problem. And you see this with adults too, right? You'll, you'll see in many people, they will, okay, they, they went to bed late because they were, you know, binging on Netflix, right? They fell asleep at two in the morning. They wake up at seven. They miss Fajr because they're so tired. But now they have to get up to go to work. They grab a breakfast. Maybe they pray Fajr outside of the time before they went to work. Maybe, maybe not if they're running late. They get to work. They're busy. Although they have a break and they could pray Dhuhr, they don't. Asr comes. Uh, they could pray Asr too, but you know they don't. So what happens is they say, I'll pray when I get home. They drive home, they get home, and they combine these prayers together. right? And in the wintertime, it becomes... Dhuhr, Asr, and Maghrib, right? And for some people, it's all five prayers. They say, well, I'll just pray them all when I get home. That is haram. That is, that is sinful. So sabr in ta'a, within that context, is to discipline yourself and say, Allah tells us in the Qur'an that salat has been made for the believers kitaban mawquta, in prescribed times. It's not for us to adjust the times of prayers for our convenience. They punctuate our life. We organize our life to the best of our ability around the prayers. We don't organize the prayers around our life at the easiest possible moment when everything has been done at the end of the night before we go to bed. So that's a kind of sabr in obedience to Allah Ta'ala. The third type of sabr is sabr in the balaya or masaib, tribulations. Trials, difficulties. Now, what makes this one different from the other two is that this one's not our choice. Right? You have a choice, I have a choice to obey Allah Ta'ala or disobey Allah Ta'ala. Right? So sabr in avoiding the haram is based on a choice to avoid the haram. Sabr in obedience is a choice to obey Allah. But when it comes to this third one, we don't really have a choice with regards to tri trials and tribulations. We don't always see them coming, right? You don't choose when to receive a sudden affliction. You know, 
you know, la qadr Allah, you know, a car accident, for instance. A person's not planning to get into a car accident. It just happens. So, although we don't have a choice, when that tribulation descends, we do have a choice in how we respond to it. And that is where sabr in tests and tribulations uh, comes up. So the ulama say that for sabr with uh, tribulations, it is to not express sakhat. What is sakhat? Sakhat means basically discontent, right? With the decree of Allah Ta'ala. In word or deed, zahiran wa batinan, inwardly or outwardly. So what does that look like? Sakhat is, we talked about this in the diseases, displeasure with divine decree. It is, you know, why is this happening to me? You know, I didn't deserve this. You know, why God? Why would you do this to me? You know, that kind of thing. Whether it is bilisan al-hal or bilisan al-maqal, whether you verbalize it or you say it inside of yourself, right? To banish that from the heart and to recognize that Allah Ta'ala is al-hakim. And we don't understand always the wisdoms behind tribulations. Sometimes, out of Allah's mercy, He does reveal to us through time the wisdom behind tribulations. But other times, we may not know the wisdom until the hereafter, right? Now, I think we've mentioned this a few times before. It's important. Think about your own life. You know, most of you have significant life experience. You know, not that you're all ancient people, but you've, you've had life experience. Think about those moments in life where times were tough. And something happened in your life and you couldn't understand the wisdom behind it. It was a really tough time. But over a period of years, as things developed in your life, you look back and realize that that difficulty was a great blessing. Because were it not for that, things might have turned out completely different. And you're actually in a better place now than you would have been if that tribulation never happened. Right? If you can find experiences like that in your own life and think, okay, look at where I am now, where Allah has blessed me in this way, in this way, in this way, and all of this I can trace to the, you know, I can trace a causal link between these things and that bad thing that happened that then caused this, which caused that, which led me to where I am now. That was a great blessing in disguise. If you can find those moments in your own life, that is wonderful because use that experience and project it forward in the current thing you're dealing with and say, okay, just like those things in the past, there's wisdoms that were uncovered only years later. And like those, this test, inshallah, will pass. I will be patient and I know that Allah is al-Hakim and that uh, good will come out of this as long as I am patient. And then inshallah, Allah uncovers that wisdom as time goes by and you realize it was the best possible thing to happen to you. Right? So uh, that's essentially what sabr is for tribulations. Now I'll, I'll end with, uh, for sabr, with this synopsis. The ulama they talk about sabr as a command, a, an amr, a divine command. And they say that 
uh, it actually takes on the five legal rulings in Sharia, which you're all very familiar with by now, alhamdulillah. There's a, there's a kind of sabr that is obligatory, a kind that is recommended, a kind that is haram, and a kind that is makruh. Right? So four out of the five. There's sabr taking one of those rulings. So they say that the wajib sabr, the sabr that you have to have as a divine command, is the sabr in fulfilling obedience to Allah, sabr in staying away from the haram, and sabr in patience with afflictions. What we just described, those three. That's wajib. Then there comes a recommended sabr, meaning it's not obligatory to do, but it's recommended. You get a reward. And that is patience with annoying people. <laughs> patience with annoying behaviors. Uh, patience with uh, harms and things like that. Uh, although it doesn't mean you can respond to those things in a haram way, right? Some, you know, your neighbor annoys you, they're making noise. It's not that it's wajib to be sabir, patient in that moment, as long as you don't go next door and start throwing eggs on their house or, you know, doing bad things to them as a response. Uh, but it means that if, you know, if you're annoyed, you can be annoyed, right? As long as you're not doing anything haram, you're not required to be sabir. Then there comes a haram sabr, surprisingly. There's a haram sabr, which is sabr with something you are obliged to hate or stop. Right? And the scholars give a really good example. They say an example of this is seeing another man flirt with your wife. Okay? Imagine, la qadrullah, something like that happens. Guy comes up to your wife and starts hitting on her, flirting with her. It is haram for you as a husband to just stand there and say, I'll be patient with this. Okay, honey. Yeah, okay. Hello, sir. Just continue hitting on my wife. I'll be patient in this thing. I don't like it, but I'll be patient. That's haram. You have to have ghayra. You have to have protective jealousy. You should be angry. And you should stop this person. They give another example. And that is when a person is drowning. They can't land in the water, assuming they know how to swim. <laughs> if they don't know how to swim, you know, all bets are off. But if they know how to swim, it would be haram for them to land in the water and just sink to the bottom and say, okay, I'm drowning, I'm being patient. You know, you have to try to save yourself. You can't be patient with sinking to the bottom of the lake and just drown. You have to make some effort to save yourself. That would be another example. Now, fortunately, those are not too common, but the ulama mentioned them because we want clarity. Then there is a makru sabr, which is being patient with something that when it is done, it leads to a makru state, such as patience with eating so little that it weakens one to the point of being unable to stand in prayer. This is not really an issue for most people. Uh, it, w it would have been an issue, you know, a thousand years ago when a lot of people tried to apply the hadith about eating less uh, and took it so far that they would only have a few morsels to the point where it weakened them to such an extent that they couldn't even stand up in salat. Right? That is a makru sabar to say, I'm being patient with eating this one piece of roti 
for these two dates. I'm being patient with this hunger, even though the hunger has rendered me incapable of standing in salat. That would be makruh. It's not necessarily haram unless there's certainty of physical harm, but it's makruh. And again, that's unlikely to ever happen to anybody. But what's the benefit of knowing these things, even if they'll never happen? To know that patience has different rulings. Imam Murtada al-Zabidi rahimahullah, he says in his commentary on the Ihya that this indicates that patience is not sought after in and of itself. It's not matlub lidhatihi. It's not sought after in and of itself. Meaning, it is sought because it is a means to something else. And if you take that position, it establishes that shukr is superior to sabr. Because there's an old debate. Right? Who is superior? Al-ghani al-shakir am al-faqir al-sabir. Which one is superior? The wealthy person who is grateful with shukr or the poor person who is patient with their poverty? There's been a long debate, you know, because there's different hadith, different narrations. But if you say that patience is a means to an end and not an end unto itself, that establishes that shukr is superior because shukr is sought in and of itself and shukr endures into jannah. Shukr is in jannah as a quality of ahlul jannah. Sabr is not. When you are in jannah, there's no sabr. From what? There's no ma'asiyah, there's no taklif, meaning you know, you're not charged with legal duties, and there's no balaya, there's no tribulations, there's no problems whatsoever. So there's no sabr, but there is shukr. And the people of Jannah, Allah mentions in the Quran in a number of places the discourse of Ahlul Jannah, and you see in so many verses they're saying, Alhamdulillah, they're praising Allah, they're thanking Allah, and that becomes the means of even their uh, enjoyment of the blessings of Jannah. So shukr is a superior virtue if you compare the two because it is more enduring. And that leads us to that virtue. They're paired together in this life because we're always revolving between them. But shukr is superior. What is shukr? Gratitude, thankfulness. Think about, before we even go into the definitions, just think about Truly grateful people, right? Any of you have experience as school teachers? I know some of you have been with Sunday school. Uh, think about a student in class who, okay, this student is really smart. They do all their work properly. They do all their homework. Are we uh, running out of time? Okay. Okay, so I'll give you this anecdote, and then we'll stop. It's okay. We're, we'll be fine for next week because next week is a little bit shorter. Uh, you have a student. This student is the top student in your class. They do all their homework. They get 100 on every single test. They know the answers to every single question. They're the smartest one in the class. But they're rude. And they're arrogant. They're annoying. But then you have the other student. This student struggles. They do their homework sometimes, sometimes they forget, or it's incomplete, 
They don't get the best grades on the test. They try, but they struggle. But they have gratitude. Thank you, teacher. I appreciate you, teacher. Thank you for teaching me this lesson. I, I really benefited. Uh, they have good manners. Which one are you going to like the most as a teacher? The second one. Even though you are concerned with them getting good grades, that's your job after all, to educate them and make sure that they have a high mark, you're going to like the person, the, the, the poorer student, you know, the one who has lower grades, because they have more gratitude, right? Versus the one who does everything right, but they have an attitude of, of, of pride and arrogance. So, you know, with gratitude, gratitude will get you very far, you know, with people and with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because the person who acknowledges their faults and weaknesses, but they're just full of shukr, they receive from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala what the one lacking shukr does not. So next week, inshallah, since we ran over the time, we'll define it, inshallah, and go into that, and then move to the others.